Grady here. Welcome to a new episode of Northern Bibliosphere, a space where we celebrate all things books from, about and in the north of Scotland. Yes, we're changing up a wee bit as we all love to try new things. Uh, so if you have any suggestions or tips of what you'd like to hear more of in our podcast or less of, do get in touch. We love a feedback and having conversations with you listeners. And on the topic of conversations, this week we do dive into a fundamental deep conversation around racism in Scotland. Our guest is the wonderful Olukemio Gunyemi, who grew up in the Centre Belt but moved to the Highlands years ago to find a shelter and a safer place. But it turns out that is not quite the safe heaven you might think of. More on this in the interview. Her first book, which was published last year, Brown Girl in the Ring, is a memoir of her bringing in Scotland as a mixed-race child. It's really a book that so many people should read, really, especially when coming from a white, privileged background. It's an eye-opener, it was for me, and a really intimate account of trauma faced because of conscience and unconscious racism. But there is also a lot of hope, resilience and the will and necessity of creating a dialogue. We talk about institutional racism, what happens in schools, the independence referendum, as well as the ongoing inquiry for the death of Shikabayo. So that's it from me. Let's dive into this very fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy. So hi, Lukemi, and uh, welcome to Northern Bibliosphere. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to have you on Northern Bibliosphere because uh, of your book, Branger in the Ring, is just uh, such a, like, I really felt so much after reading it. And uh, it's a memoir. It's your, it's about your experience of uh, growing up as a mixed race, ch- race child in Scotland and then your life as an, as an adult. Um, and talking about your children as well so um it's very again it's very deep and is a very introspective uh experience um for the person who reads as well i think it's a really fantastic book and very uh just very intense and very important to read i think in many ways so can i ask you uh how did you decide to write the book what brought you to write the book well i the book was always going, a part of the book was always going to be written by somebody else as I wanted part of it so that I could give to my children as they got older because of some stuff that had happened so that they could see it from my point of view. But in 2020, when George Floyd died, I believe that something happened to us all all of us, whether we were in lockdown or not, I think that for me, I started hearing people that weren't mixed race or black, that were white, saying how terrible this had been and all these different stories were coming out and white people were supporting it. So for me, I I think that that took the lid off of something that I didn't ever think would ever be able to be healed or talked about. Until that point in time, I really believed it was something that I would just have to live with. And then Black Lives Matter, they dedicated their um, 
weekend to Trans Lives Matter. And I have a transgender daughter. And that was huge because it's difficult in the black community because it's so religious. So my daughter doesn't have a lot of support. So it was massive for their family. And then that day, no media coverage over the weekend, no media coverage of this huge event in her family's life. And that kind of put me in a spiral of distress and pain. So after some days of anguish, I just felt compelled to write down my experience and that's how it came about. You, uh, well, you were first living in London, if I, am I correct? You were born in Scotland, but you were, you lived your very first years in London, which is yeah. a very different yeah. experience from living in, uh, <laughs> around here. So, uh, and then you moved to, um, Colour Crew. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Again, something that I might not have pronounced correctly, so apologies for Kalkrux. I've passed it in a, a name like an oh, amount of times on the train between Glasgow and Edinburgh, but there's still some Scottish names that I'm very terrible at. But you went there, which is a much smaller reality, and also yeah. you didn't have any representative uh, of color there, so no one to stand up for you, but no one to look at as well because your father back then had been sent to prison. So um, you are living with your mother's family. So can I ask you a bit about that change back then? Well, and we, I used to come and visit Scotland regularly. And when I visited Scotland, it was fantastic when we just visited me and my younger brother. Um, but when we came to live here, it was a completely different thing altogether because I think that we were the first people of colour that that village had ever seen. And that was massive. And I think that the unconscious, unconscious racism started immediately because people didn't want us there. It was very, very clear. And for my mum and her family, as an adult looking back, they were just as affected as what I was because they were being rejected because of us. Their behaviour through it, unfortunately, they had to survive and nobody educated them on what happens when you have mixed race children. So it was pretty horrific. But I had grandparents that really did nurture and protect me as much as they could. But as a child, I, I stopped telling people things that happened because I thought that the people that weren't racist to me hadn't realised that I was mixed race. So I thought by telling them it would just make it worse. So I tried to keep it a secret, if that makes sense. That's terrible in a way. And uh, I'm thinking that, uh, again, you're saying that you had your grandparents that were very loving figures in your life but the rest of the family quite didn't stand up for you when uh, abuse happened. Um, and then uh, even when your father came back, yeah. you had still a, you had maybe a relationship back then and then it got lost again. So how, how was it even not having part, members of your family standing up for you? Do you know, I think I was about eight when it started. I was eight, but I didn't understand. I really didn't understand. I was learning that I was mixed race, which made me different. 
And I honestly didn't understand why so many people hated me. And it was, I think I spent all of my younger years just in survival, going from one traumatic event to another. I think that maybe if I had been born in Scotland, I don't know if it would have been as tough because I didn't know it. I wouldn't have known anything different. But because I did know something different and my dad had been there, it was like the rep in, in London, we had a lot of um, family. I went to Nigeria a lot, but when my mum came back to Scotland, all of that stopped. So it was really difficult. I mean, I did try to paint myself white one day just because it, it was so, I just wanted to fit in and nothing about me fitted in. Everything was different. And then uh, you tell in the book how that eventually, of course, took a toll on your mental health as well. Um, and the fact that that led to uh, body dysmorphia issues uh, also um, with your mother trying to keep you and make you look white. Let's put it this way. But um, how how did that go? Uh, how did that develop? Well, do you know, I was anorexic from age 14 till about 28. So all of my teen years were all about anorexia. So it consumed everything. And, and I, I also became a mother at 17 and had three children by the time I was 24. So between that and that anorexia, it, it was an escape. In the anorexia, it was, it was about wanting to disappear do you know although it it shows itself as weight it's about wanting it was about wanting to disappear and when you don't eat you don't feel either so I think that looking back knowing that now it was a way that I numbed down what was happening but to be honest I really what at that point in my teens that was just how life was. I, I didn't actually ever expect it at that point to change. It, and when your life's been a certain way, it's like some people will say to you, oh, that was terrible and how did you survive? But when you're in it, it's terrible and you're surviving, but it's all that you know. Do you know? So it's, it's you just keep on going. You, you just keep on going. So yeah, the anorexia helped to numb out a lot of the feelings. Well, and back then, that also probably didn't give you the power to um, uh, get back at certain things that were happening to you. Uh, your first two important relationships from which you had, your first three children, uh, were a great example of that. So can you tell me a bit more about uh, them, please? So um, my first relationship, I think I must have been about 15 at the time, and he was 17. We were both still at, still at school. And again, I, I got into a relationship that was really violent, violent and aggressive, but I didn't really know anything other than that because my whole childhood you know there was a lot of violence in my household growing up so I think by that time I didn't expect people to be any different and I didn't know enough to know that it wasn't okay to be in that situation 
So I think that my own self-worth at that point was so low and it was familiar. So I, I was in that first relationship until I was just before I was 19. And then we split up and I was on my own for a while with my daughter. But then when I met my first husband, it didn't it didn't start off like violent. It, it, you know, the, there was things looking back that wasn't great, but I, I on it again, I, I didn't know anything other than aggression and manipulation and violence. So I kind of just was with with what I knew. And unfortunately, I think that I just thought that's how everybody's life was. And to be honest, I don't think that I consciously thought about a lot of things back then because I just couldn't afford to. How, how did you feel about looking back at those things now? Um, of course, you've, uh, you've done a, a fantastic journey on uh, and uh, um, you've come out of uh, that spiral in a way and um, there's been a lot of yeah. support from uh, great people in your life but you yourself had done a, a massive work oh, on yourself yeah. first by going to college uh, and now now you're a body therapist uh, and uh, so you know I've been a therapist for over 20 years and it's really helped me with my early experience to understand people so to be honest with you it's it just now I'm grateful for the life that I've had, especially at this point where I'm able to share it and help other people understand. Because I think that it doesn't define who I am, but it's helped me get to where I need to be in my life. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change anything that's happened because I understand myself and people far more than I think I ever would have done without that experience. Um, it, it, it's strange to actually try and explain that to somebody, like when, when you ask that question of looking back on it, but yeah, I am grateful for everything that's happened because I have wonderful children, you know, on the, and other aspects of my life, I've been able to come to the Highlands and start a business with my husband and, you know, always been highly successful up here. And this is a much, much gentler part of Scotland, a much realer part of Scotland for me. If you like people interact, you still have community. So although there's been things here, it's nowhere near on the scale of what happened um, when I was in the central belt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was quite interesting to see um, how coming from the central belt and then the first move when you were basically escaping um, the situation. I don't want to give too much of the book. Go read the book. It's a, a very fascinating story as well. But um, at the same time, uh, you came here, and at first it was all you felt. You said that you said that you felt protected, but then eventually, other things started to unravel while you were leaving there. So, can you tell me a bit more about how your experience of racism and racist behavior towards you has changed from being in the Central Belt to being in the Highlands? 
Well, when I came to the Highlands, um, one of the reasons that we picked the Highlands, I mean, at that point, I wanted to go back south again. I didn't want to live in a, a minority anymore, but couldn't really afford to do that. And we had visited up here and, and it was very, very lovely. Um, and when, we, when I came up at first, I was in hiding. Like, I didn't tell anybody where I was going. The local police knew, the children's school knew, but nobody else knew. And I thought I was safe. And we had the, a glorious eight, nine months of really respite. Looking back now, it was like an interval to when it started again. But at that point, everything was really, really settled. People were really happy to have us here because of what we offered in the town as well. Um, the racism up here didn't actually start until the referendum. It was, the children had, had little bits at school, but nothing that you wouldn't expect, to be honest. But um, the referendum changed things, I think, for people that maybe don't understand as much, you know, their views are maybe more ignorant. I think that they saw it as maybe Scotland wanting to get rid of anybody that wasn't white and Scottish. And, so the racism became really bad during that time. And I moved my business from Nairn High Street to where I live now. And my, my youngest daughter has suffered a lot with racism. And unfortunately, the institutional staff has came up again within the authorities, but it's milder than 17 years ago, but it's still an ongoing issue that needs to be addressed because I think that, you know, looking at Scotland and Scotland's quite a radical little country, you know, and, and can do some fantastic things. But I think when it comes to the change with the racism laws and all the things that we have in place, I find that they're not being upheld because people don't understand them. So from that point of view, yeah, it's milder, but I think overall there has to be within our institutions quite a bit of education because people don't understand. And there's a difference between not understanding something and being like blatantly racist, that they're two different concepts. The unconscious racism is completely different again. So that was another reason why, when I was writing the book and have written the book, why the awareness is so important, because I think that when people do have awareness of it, then their concept changes and the behavior changes. But if you don't, if you don't realize that you're doing something like that, this is a this is a a small populated area with a really small um, population of people of color. However, it's changing very quickly. With we have the army here now, and it's brought in a lot of people of color. So that that is also changing things. I think for people because I think the more that you see different types of culture, then 
it that in itself changes people's thoughts yeah no there's a i have so many questions <laughs> from what you said i think that uh yeah you're saying that it's one thing that there's a lot of lack of is uh, knowledge and especially at school with teenagers yes. yes if you're a teenager most times up until a certain age you will do certain things because you mirror other behaviors probably as well which is uh so because you're you don't know better um and in certain mm -hmm. well, certain cases there is a active will to do that but how important it is that parents schools um and everyone that is around young people now adds into that uh, discussion of okay let's raise awareness on this issue and actually get them to know something that is different from them like looking or like other cultures but also just to be how do you teach people to be more open in terms of like this is not just it's not just this it's not it's not all white and all that in that set in, in that way and, and it has to start in schools it has to start with young people I mean um there was a channel four program dispatches and they done um in lockdown the school that tried to end racism now they've done a three-week program on 11-year-olds because by that time the unconscious bias is already there and it's fascinating to see how children change and it's a societal thing i think i think society we're still living in the belief structure of our ancestors which is in some instances, like centuries old. Do you know, I don't think we fit in to how that was. And I think that's what's changing just now. I think that a lot of our structures were built many, many years ago when it wasn't important to look at other cultures being in your country. But I definitely think that we have to start with the children more than anybody else we have to start with the children because it's something that that if they learn at an early age the difference even between minority and and being not being of them like being a minority in a, a white society just even how that can change because I I've noticed it all through my children's school and in my youngest child, I've done it, well, my two youngest, I've done it very differently. It was more about protecting them than their education. And they went from mainstream, the youngest started off in Steiner, went to Gordonston, back to Steiner, and then the local academy. And in every single instance, she had racism. My children have not been in any environment of education where they haven't had to endure racism from their peers always and from just a bias of a, of the collective it can be biased unconsciously and that affects the children from when they're very young that's absolutely awful and i'm so sorry that i had to go through all of this and um i'm wondering if it's 
really important to give, especially maybe in society in areas where there's not maybe a, but there the minorities are still fairly like minorities where like having more access to um, that type of culture from areas where it's more um, um, is more common let's say maybe like, there's more voices there um, and especially to maybe give a platform to the ones that are there like yourself so how, how important is that a hundred I think it's really really important I also think like one of the things that I, I'm, I'm really quite passionate about and which I hope that we will do in Scotland like over the next couple of years is things like festivals and carnivals like England most cities have a carnival for people of colour where you, you have a weekend of different cultures where people can come and experience you know, those different cultures. I think the fact that we don't mix is where the problem lies. Because if we don't mix, then you can end up with things like stereotypes and beliefs, and they are real. They are very, very real. And we have to respect that people feel that way and work from that aspect. Because to punish and condemn somebody that that has belief structures and they don't even realize they have belief structures, that person's going to go into defense and you're going to get nowhere. And I think that the cultures, culturally, we need to mix. And that's parents, teachers, all, all of us that, that work within areas with other people should be aware of, do you know, that mixing is important and I mean, there will be lots of teachers that will see that children are not mixing in the same way. And, and there is certain things. I've had a lot of teachers that have written to me and a couple of teachers that are just qualifying because they don't know what to look for if they're white. They don't realise that there's certain things that can go on where the child of colour will always be blamed. And that goes, you know, it's... I have it, I've had it with my own children and even with clients just now that have children. I've got a couple of clients that are white women and the, the fathers aren't involved and their child has always been blamed for everything. Absolutely everything, but they don't see that that's to do with an unconscious thing. So even for them, they've been left by themselves. You know, their children are like I was. They don't have any um, people of colour, and that's people of colour's responsibility not to abandon these children. Yeah, that that's really. I think this is quite an interesting thing. Like growing up with, uh, like your children will have someone to look up to and someone who will try to protect them, and then has experienced recent firsthand which makes such a huge difference possibly in then how to mm -hmm. be teaching then how to deal with them. I know that um, your daughter has gone to, uh, she has uh, also gone up on a BBC documentary as well, speaking out about her own experience, which is doing that at such a young age. It's a fun, yeah. incredible thing. And it's, it's awful that she's had to go through it, but probably, she's gonna help so many other people realizing what is happening 
Absolutely. I mean, she has thousands of followers on social media and she talks about these things a lot. And this is the important thing that I think that young people have to do because I've had to prepare my children for society, not telling them that it doesn't happen. It's like it does happen. And this is why it happens, because people don't understand. And that's a horrible job to have to give to your children. But at the moment, it's the only way that they can navigate the situation. And yeah, they come home sometimes and they can be upset, but the confidence in who they are, they have a place to come back to now. Do you know, and, and, it, and it does change. They all, they've all got a voice and want to do something. Tala does it in her own way for teenagers, my transgender daughter. She's the secretary for um, Trans Pride and different things. So they're all using like their little platforms to raise awareness. And, you know, for all the things that are in the book and that I've spoke about, for me, I go to bed now actually more content knowing that my children and grandchildren will live in a better world because people are talking about things. Things might look messy, but for somebody like me, nobody ever spoke about this before and everybody is speaking about it. And that's the change. That is the change. And I think that, yeah, I feel it's getting better. People that are just open their eyes to it feel quite shocked by it. But I think that that's our life. And yeah, I, I do think things are improving and will improve if things continue on this openness. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's a, I think it's fantastic from someone who has experienced what you have experienced to come through with such a hopeful mindset as well an open mindset um it's uh it's amazing uh, well do you know when i wrote the book and we done the programs it was through um stuart kashmiri who is the scottish director he done black and scottish and he blew me away i met all these people of color that were proud to be scottish which for me was just the most bizarre thing I had ever came across, do you know? But it it made me so curious and I wanted to be like that. I really, really wanted to be like that. So that gave me hope, a lot of hope, do you know? And I, and I honestly do, I might not feel completely fully Scottish, but it's getting better. But I 100% believe in this country. And I think that it, it can change things if people continue to talk and share. So, um, yeah, you were talking about how the uh, the country can, you, you have faith in Scotland. One thing that really shocked me in the book is that how you speak about the independence referendum and that you were saying that racist episodes happen more often after that. For me, it's something that kind of really shocked me because I've never seen the independence movement as a movement that allowed, allowed any space for racism, but I've not seen it through people who suffered. So can you tell me a bit more how that's changed and why, according to you, that's happening? I think that, and I don't think, 
as I said before, before I used to judge everything on my on my experience with racism. And it was like an element of society that isn't really educated well. It for some people it does mean that. And that was the sort of people that I would hear from. It wasn't from, I'm not saying that there wasn't conversations going around me about independent referendum, but to be honest, I stayed away from it all because I could only see from what was happening to me personally, you know, like being shouted at on the street in shops. That hadn't happened before the independence referendum. And it was a kind of element of society that you get a lot more of in the central belt. So I maybe hadn't noticed that element before. So I'm not saying like today, looking back, I absolutely don't think that everybody that wants independence, it's about racism. I think that there's a small element, but that small element became very loud at that point in time. If if that happened again, it wouldn't it wouldn't affect me in the same way. I don't feel the same way about it at all as what I did back then. But I hadn't even looked at racism at that point other than just trying to protect myself. So something that is a it was a small element of it became a huge part for me so I didn't look at any aspects I didn't look at I didn't look at why or how it could be done for me it was just this element of society that thought well it's okay we can see these things again now oh, yeah that's just absolutely awful and again it probably stressed the importance of educating and exposing people to a variety absolutely. of cultures and just diversity which according like contrary to how many people what many people think it does make you richer it won't take anything from you <laughs> absolutely a hundred percent and it's like the amount of people that have approached me wrote to me I mean I have hundreds of clients that I see in a year and know a lot of people here and none of them feel this way, but none of them realized what a person of color went through either. So even from that aspect, I think that anything I write even now, I get shocked because I, I come away from it maybe thinking that's really simple, but for other people, it's like, I didn't even think about that. So I don't even fully understand the importance of everything that I share all the time, but the feedback tells me that it's on the right path. And one of the things that personally for me, and because of the institutional racism that I've had that went on for a long period of time, it's like when something like that initially starts like when you're in something with an individual for me you can feel it but as time goes on and that individual gets to know you it's like their concept changes because they see and experience something different but where I still feel that 
the fear is stopping from going forward is the institutional part of that doesn't allow anybody to step out and say, this isn't right. It's like it's still groups together, even people that know that it's wrong, even if the majority know that it's wrong, the institution doesn't allow, in my experience and in things that are still going on now, it's the most, it's very interesting to watch actually. It's a very, very interesting part to watch because I've seen this behavior even with my children where I've had to go and speak to schools and different things and the fear of people not wanting to look at it. That's a real, 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 real thing. And I think that's one of the things that we really need to combat is the uncomfortableness of, for everybody, people of color and people that are white, they, we all struggle with the uncomfortableness of actually allowing it to be on the table. Yeah, no, and in your book, you talk about your experience with a variety of services and institutions. And uh, yeah, what comes through is that the problem of admitting a fault, mm -hmm. uh, which is striking and even... Um, when uh, in a part where you're actually uh, calling for um, an inquiry to be had on certain member of uh, um, of the institutions, then it doesn't it doesn't happen. It feels like even the watchdogs mm. are sort of covering up Absolutely. that because they're sort of a um, yeah just a reciprocated cover up, which she feels it's infuriating because watchdogs should be there for that institutions that need they should be there for that no matter what the issue is mm -hmm. and especially if that's something as grave and horrible as racism so um yeah uh, how do you think we can target that according to you and according to your experience have you seen anything that has worked in your experience in order to Well, just, now, just now, I think we have an amazing opportunity in Scotland just now. And, and it, it, it's not actually about my book, although it's in my book. I have been attending the Sheikh Bio inquiry. And that is absolutely fascinating. Do you know, putting aside everything that's happened and all the wrongs that have happened, sitting in that inquiry... There's a whole collective of police officers that are sitting there, and I want to make it really clear, I do not have a problem with the police. Do you know, other than what happened as a teenager, throughout my life, I've always found them supportive. But I know that's not always the case. But sitting in that inquiry, to the left, is full of police officers from all different ranks on the doors, at the steps, there is police officers everywhere. They are going out of their way to say hello, to let you know. It, I mean, it's bizarre as you walk in, it's like, when they say hello, it's like, they, it's, like it's not just a kind of nod of the head, it's, there's compassion there. I mean, there really, really is genuine compassion. And when you look at them all sitting, listening to the inquiry, you can see the distress, 
you can see the upset, you can see the discomfort, you can even see that they know that it's not right. And they in themselves, I believe, sitting there knowing that it's not right. But as a collective, it is such a picture of institution, such a picture, because even although you know each one of them are not thinking to the script of what's being said, nobody will come out and say, Do you know, we got it wrong. And one of the most horrifying things in that is, is that Police Scotland have never had any racist or biased training in Police Scotland ever, other than a week that they do at Tilly Allen, even after Shaco Bio's death, they have never been educated on unconscious bias, racism or diversity. Out of all the police officers that have been asked, they haven't given, they haven't been given any training. For me, we're letting down our police service. How can we expect them to look after us and uphold the law when they have less training than what even DHL give their drivers? Yeah, no, that's that's shocking. I didn't expect it to be that way. And one thing that really like shocked me about uh, the Shekibaya inquiry. I personally wasn't here in Scotland when that happened, but considering that it has restarted, the chapter has been reopened, the inquiry is going on, there's not really been, it's not been talked about as much as it should. I don't know if you agree. No, a hundred percent. And this is the thing. What I'm trying to do is raise awareness so that I can run a bus here in November when it comes back on again, because I think, and it's been streamed, you can watch it on YouTube, but I think that for people to actually listen in, they will learn a lot because stereotypes played a huge part in that case. Do I believe that the police, that anybody wanted that to happen? Absolutely not under any circumstances, but because of how people thought and believed, that's that, that that's where we got to. And I think that to have something that's publicly out there, I think we could all have a quick crash course in how things can go wrong with no education. Do you know, because there, there needs to be a coming together where it's like, yeah, this has happened, but look at the facts, of course it was going to happen. It's like, how do we help the police to do better? How do we call for them to be educated and funded properly so that this doesn't ever happen again? It, it that That's where I come from. It's not what's been done. But also, for me, people of colour, Black Lives Matter, Nobody's there. Nobody, it is the most heartbreaking thing I have ever experienced. I go in with the family. I sit with the family, that mother and sister. And sometimes it's only me and my husband and two other people. I mean, that is shocking. And Black Lives Matter, they got all the support in 2020, 21. They're nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen, no people of colour. There's a free bus that runs from Glasgow once a month. It's not even half full most of the time. So it's not just white people, 
it's like, why does, for me, it's like, why does this not matter? It's such an opportunity for this, for us to learn from something like this. So I, I find the whole thing devastating, but it's not just white people. There's people of color are not showing up and black lives matter. There's been nothing, absolutely nothing. And that is very disappointing because on some aspects, I hear people saying, oh, I'm fed up listening to Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. And that's, that, that is another argument entirely, but I'm disappointed with Black Lives Matter in Scotland because where it does matter, they're nowhere to be seen. That's shocking and very, well, very sad to hear. Um, on, on the other hand, I really, I think that is really interesting and fascinating how after all you've gone through, you're still, you're you're looking at the future and now uh, with a, a perception that looks like you want you want a dialogue you want to you want to give people the tools it, it doesn't feel like anger although you would be absolutely entitled but anger is anywhere on either side it's like i'm not saying that people can't be angry of course they can be angry and that's why at the beginning of the book, it's like it was giving people a chance to read it, have the reaction, you know, and then come to the table. Because people have to have a reaction, and that reaction is normally defensive or anger. So it's like, let those moments be. And, and if you can do it without that, then the conversation is there to be had. But it's going to take some people a while to get over their anger. You know, on both sides, and that's fair enough, but that isn't what's going to take us forward here. What how we change things, but we need to recognize what's been going on first. Absolutely. And well, you were talking about people's reaction. Can I ask you about what was the reaction of people who are named and mentioned in the book to the book? Did you have any particular reaction or after it's published? It was published. Are you talking about the people that are um, maybe not on my side? Both of them. Or are you talking? Okay. Um, do you know, the, the reaction has been fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, when it comes to my parents, um, I think that my mother definitely expected that I would do this one day and we don't have a relationship as such but we have contact and I have seen her since um I wrote the book and you know it's a tough one for her I, I absolutely respect that but I also respect the fact that I'm not saying that she's happy with it, but she understands that especially women in her position can learn a lot from maybe reading about what it was like for her children and for herself. Um, my dad's okay with it, but I don't have contact with my family. So other than that, I don't really know how it's been received as such, if you like. 
But it was never about the family, although there's so much in there about the family. I've said in it, it, it was bigger than anybody in the story, I believe, when it comes to awareness with the things that were going on. So, yeah, that's... And people that were part of it, that are on my side, they all knew and were very happy that it was finally being written and things were being set straight. But I've had no bad reaction at all from anybody. The first person to contact me was a 16-year-old white boy, which was absolutely fascinating, thanking me for allowing him the understanding for how brown girls might feel. So for my daughters, that that was a, an amazing feat. Um, I had a few white mums that were on their own that wrote to me about their daughters and not understanding, and then did after writing the book. But the most amazing thing that happened was I went to Nigeria and February for my birthday as a surprise and reunited with my cousin whose mother was dedicated in the book and the really interesting thing about that is one of my cousins who's 10 years older than me has a brother in Italy that that is married to a white woman she has a brother in America and she has a son that's just married an Italian woman. And she said, I had no idea that I, those children need me to be present in their life as much as what they did. So even from the black community, she had no idea that this went on in the UK because even my cousins that have came to study in the UK, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. They're not within our institutions and they don't, they, they have experiences of racism, but it's not the same thing. So all across the board, I think there's something in the book for everybody. Yeah, no, definitely. And especially it depends on also possibly where you are in terms of, apart from country, but if you're in a big city, it will be different from where you are in a smaller place, whether you're in Italy or somewhere else. But I think even just for her point of view, she just thought, you know, I maybe it wouldn't have been a priority to maybe visit regularly. And, and for her, she says, I won't just wait for the family to come to Nigeria now. I will be making like proper regular plans to be there just as like so that there's more for the child there where they look around and see that black grandmother that they maybe didn't see very often so yeah I think it's important one other thing that I wanted to ask of course we were talking about how this book was very cathartic for you so can you tell me a bit more about what it meant to you writing this book and how you feel afterwards do you know um when I wrote it I was quite terrified <laughs> because I was just getting it out and my husband helped and the lady that was going to write it for me, she became my editor. And I remember them saying to me after I'd done the first draft, because I'd done the first draft in about three and a half weeks. 
And she had said, you need to use your client basis to tell people. And I thought, I am not telling anybody I've wrote this book. So <laughs> to begin with, it was just getting out all of the pain of what had happened. And now, I think that now that it's out there, I have less fear. Because what I realised was when I was writing it during the second lockdown, a friend of mine moved from Finhorn to Barkhead and she wanted me to go out there for a walk with her. And I realised probably because of COVID and lockdown and stuff, you become more aware of things. I couldn't go because I was too scared. It was out of my comfort zone of where I went. I realized that I still didn't freely just get in the car and go anywhere, especially somewhere where I wasn't familiar with. Whereas now, like another 18 months on, I think I wouldn't think about it. Do you know, it's like, I think I wouldn't think about it now. There's certain things that have definitely left that 18 months ago were a big thing. Everything I used to do, even when we went on holiday somewhere, I was scared of everything, absolutely everything. Because I think there had been so much, I just always expected something to come around the corner. But I don't feel like that anymore. I feel much more secure in who I am. Do you know, whereas before it felt like something that I was ashamed of to be who I was. So, yeah, writing the book has changed that hugely. And talking to you today, I would have never done anything like that before. So, yeah, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. I think I've grown in to being more of more out there because I've always been an introvert, which I think has helped me a lot because I've kind of always looked within myself to process and figure it out. So yeah, I'm 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 feel safer to be out there now. Yeah. That's amazing. No, I'm very happy and I'm very happy that this led to this interview as well because I think it's such an important thing to talk about in general and the more conversations that we can have about racism, how we can tackle this is great. And this is a really fantastic book, I think, and it's very... I, I, I was really like, finding it very difficult to put it down because you do get very much invested in the story as well because it's so personal and written in a very personal way of course so uh, yeah thank you very much for coming on northern viviosphere today it's been amazing to have you thank you very much for the support it means a lot thank you I don't think I can stress enough how much I'm grateful for hearing from Olukemi and all the people who come forward with their own experiences of trauma and racism they shouldn't have to but in the society we live in they do an incredible job in raising awareness and this is vital when so much of it comes from ignorance and social bias. 
If you want to get to know more about the Shekabayo inquiry, I have put links in the show notes where you can see the recordings on YouTube of the inquiry and read more about it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that this will, in a way, leave you wanting to know more or be part of the much-needed change in our society. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review or share it with other Bibliophiles. And if you want to get in touch with ideas, feedback or recommendation, or even just to say hi, please drop us an email at northernbiblospherepod at gmail.com or follow us on our social channels. Farewell until the next time. Bye.